Odds on a Gardenian proletariat revolution? I'm gonna say the fairy revolution is more likely. Hello and welcome to Bibble Babes, your podcast for analyzing the Barbie cinematic universe. I'm Gabby. And I'm Catherine. And, and we're, we're your Bibble Babes. And today we have a very special guest with us. It's our first time with a special guest on this podcast. We have political science student Elias Pritza. Introduce yourself. Hi. So, like Catherine said, I'm Elias Pritza. I'm a political science student. I'm graduating with my degree in political science and public policy in um, just over two months, which is a little bit nerve-wracking, but it means I have a lot of knowledge about um, international systems, and I will be applying it in a way I never thought I would before today. On today's episode, we're doing a special political analysis of Barbie Princess Charm School. We are going to look at the fictional country of Gardenia's political and class structures and discuss the implications this would have. So before we do that, we're going to give you guys a brief summary of the plot of this film, um, just so you guys have like a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about when we do our little bit of a deep dive here. Also, disclaimer, this is one of my favorite Barbie movies. We'll, we'll see if that still stands after we do our deep dive. <laughs> So, Barbie Princess Charm School is a story of Blair, who is a young woman working full-time as a barista to support her sister and sick mother. When Blair wins a lottery spot at Princess Charm School, she must leave her world behind to train and become a lady royal and improve the lives of her family. At Princess Charm School, Blair discovers that she is actually the long-lost Princess of Gardenia and must seek out a magical crown to prove that she is the rightful heir to the throne of Gardenia. At the end, she is crowned princess and helps her family to escape from poverty. So, before we get into the in-depth political analysis, we need to set a little bit of the background structure for Gardenia. Uh, set down a few basics about Gardenia and Princess Charm School. So, all princesses must attend and graduate from Princess Charm School to take their places as heirs to the throne. There is also an upper class that sends their daughters to Princess Charm School to become lady royals that are advisors to the princesses. Princesses are not the ruling class, they still have to become queens to rule, which happens after the death of the previous queen or king. Every year there is a lottery to attend Princess Charm School if one girl from the Kingdom of Gardenia is selected from. The girl only attends for a semester and has this long to master what they need to know to become a lady royal. On graduation and coronation day, princesses choose a lady royal. Not every lady royal gets chosen, however. When lady royals and princesses begin their time at Princess Charm School, they are assigned a fairy to act as a personal assistant. It appears that only princesses and lady royals have these. There is also a prince academy that functions in the same way. And oh, oh boy. boy. Like when we first were thinking about who we would have appear as a guest on this podcast, we were now going through our list of friends, you know, what are their specialties, what are their interests, and then we realized, aha, we have a poli-sci major in the house. <laughs> um, and then we were saying to ourselves, we're like, what is the most like politically intriguing film in the Barbie cinematic universe? And just immediately... Barbie Princess Charm School because if you really sit down and think about it, it's this is something. insane. It is literally insane. It is wild, this political system that is apparently set up in this film. And we're going to talk about it. And for some additional context, uh, before I start, I had never seen a single Barbie movie before this. I'm not quite sure how, but I just never did. So this was my very first one. And oh boy, is it a doozy. Are they all like this? Uh, uh, no. Well, <laughs> and also, yes. Yes and no is the, yes probably the no. best answer. Like, the vibes? Yes. Yeah. The, the really obscurely, like, weird political background? No. Not necessarily. Not all of them. They run the gambit genre-wise, tone-wise, and... um. This makes me want to kidnap you and show you more yes. Barbie movies. Like, I mean, I wouldn't complain. I had a great time, so... Princess Charm School, y'all... Let's let's unpack that a little bit here. Yeah, so fun fact about this film is it's sort of like a segue from the fairy tale structure of the first couple of films to the more modern sort of structure. It sits at that intersection, which is also interesting to consider. Yeah, that was one thing I found really interesting while watching this. Um, and also how many historical connections that this movie was trying to draw to just historical European monarchies in general. Particularly the British one, because the way Isabella 
and her Queen Isabella and her husband died was kind of a one-for-one recreation of the Princess Diana car crash in which she died with her partner at the time. Who's to say with Princess Diana? People certainly have their beliefs and thoughts about the matter, but in uh, Princess Charm School, the car accident that kills Queen Isabella and her partner and supposedly their, like, little kid is also, like, like literally assassination. It's sabotage. It's, it was absolutely intentional. And so just like, wow, the aggressive tie to Princess Diana there was not something I anticipated for some reason. Yeah. No, neither did I. But that's a good segue to start talking about monarchies and the absolute craziness that is the line of succession in the Gardenian monarchy from what I was able to parse out. I want those listening to know that Elias has written this down on a paper towel. Oh, yeah, I have a... (laughs) Real hodgepodge collection of notes here. There's a paper towel, there's a notebook, there's a Google Doc, and we're just putting it all together today. So what I was able to figure out about this line of succession is that it seems to be um, what's called absolute primogeniture, which means the crown passes hereditarily from the monarch to the monarch's firstborn child, regardless of that child's gender. The only reason we really know this is because there are really not many male characters in this film at all, aside from Nicholas, who can barely be called a character. He shows up, like, what, twice? Has a breakdance scene, (laughs) leaves. Has a breakdance scene and leaves. And within that line of succession, it's interesting because if there is no direct heir to the throne, the crown instead passes from the monarch's firstborn child to their closest living relative. And that's how... Delancey ended up being in line for the throne to begin with because she's obviously not actually Isabella and um, the previous king's daughter. She's Devon's daughter. And Devon occupied this really weird place in the royal family. So Dame Devon is the king's sister. But she didn't go to Princess Charm School to become a princess. She went to Princess Charm School to become a lady royal. But when she graduated, she wasn't chosen to be a lady royal, and yet she was still, like, related to the king. And so she has this strange position where she's graduated, you know, the school, she has all the qualifications, but because of this arbitrary facet of the political system, she has no real power, and so she's installed as the, I suppose, lead professor of Princess Charm School, but not the headmistress, because the headmistress is someone else. And then after Devon um, kills Isabella and the king, Devon's daughter, Delancey, becomes next in line for the throne because she's technically the king's niece. And that's the closest living relative. It's a mess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a hodgepodge. Like, we were, like, sitting, like, after we watched this film, trying to figure out, okay, the king is, was he in Prince charming academy like did he go there is there an equivalent of a lady royal at prince charming academy because that's never specified Mm -hmm. and if he went to be a prince how come you know dame devon only went to be a lady royal and you know if you're not selected because apparently that happens like what do you do because uh, there's no way she was the first who wasn't selected Mm -mm. the way i interpret it is that queen isabella had the right to the throne, and she married the king, who I don't think is ever named. He's not. And he was, like, the lady royal male equivalent. That is how I, I interpret lady, it. But the lord royal? Lord royal or something like that. That's a... Lord, also, lord royal seems right, yeah. Also, when we unraveled it, it was revealed that um, Blair and Delancey are, in fact, cousins, and there went all my fan fiction ideas. <laughs> it's okay, Gabby. It's okay. We'll get to Mermadia soon. I can still write about Nori and Alina. (laughs) Um, Also important with the monarchy, they've got that divine right. Oh, right. So historically speaking, in Europe, pretty much for the entire monarchical history. um, Thank you, King Arthur. Thanks, King Arthur. There was this thing called the divine right of kings. And to summarize, royal families used it as the justification for being able to rule, despite, in many instances, being bad rulers and being unqualified and not doing a great job of making sure their countries were well-functioning societies. So they 
had this thing called the divine right of kings, which they said, okay, God has given us like his favor. And because of that, we are divinely ordained to rule this country and no one can usurp us without doing some blasphemy. And, you know, it was a pretty religious society at the time. So they, no one wanted to do a blasphemy. And that's how they managed to stay in power a lot of the time. The Gardenian monarchy also has this through that fancy magic crown. Um, (laughs) It only will glow when it's placed on the head of the rightful heir of the throne of Gardenia. This time, guys, it's a magic crown, not a magic necklace. Or God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it seems to be completely arbitrary that the magical crown was given to this family, to Blair's family and Isabella's family and all of that. And that begs another question. If Blair slash Sophie had died in the car crash, would the crown glow when when placed on Delancey's head? Because she would technically be the rightful heir. Imagine the political upheaval if it didn't glow on Delancey's head. Rip. I wonder if they were like, I don't think they ever indicate in the film whether or not they're anticipating that. Because if Sophie Blair had died then surely the magic defaults to the next rightful heir of the throne. Which, by the rules, would be Delancey. Would be Delancey. So, like, had it not glowed on her head, would they have just been like, well, she's been crowned. Whoopsie. I mean, that's what they kind of say. Like, Delancey's just like, you know, if I, they crown me before you get and, like, fix this or whatever, there's no going back. I'll be the, like, ruler of Gardania or whatever. And so it's like... So it's kind of also still arbitrary based on what Delancey said, because mm-hmm. yeah. if they're going to, like, you know, crown gets, you get coronated and it's no takesy-backsies. I feel like if she had been coronated, there would have been a little bit of a Lady Jane Grey situation on Gardinia's hands. And oh, someone would have been yeah. like, you are not the rightful heir. Such and such person is. We are going to kill you. <laughs> Selectively set this crown on the heads of every semi-Sophie-looking individual until we find her. Like, And then we have a Cinderella story. <laughs> Barbie really said all of the fairy tales. Every single one. Oh, okay. Here's something I just thought of, though. So, Devin straight up assassinated Isabella and the king. Presumably. So, pre- I mean, presumably, right? But probably. She presumably. kind of to it at if, the end. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she does. And if, Sophia had she di- did. and if Sophia had died during that, the crown might not have glowed on Delancey's head. Because it was a usurpation. Does the magic crown the, recognize... The duo um, gasp there. <laughs> I feel the, so powerful. Does the magic crown recognize... Um, I don't know what it would have called mutiny. Um, a coup? A coup. Yeah, basically a coup. Does the, Is the magic crown this well-versed? Or is it just like bloodline magic? That's a great question. That is never explored in film. If I had to guess... You know what is explored? magic closets and i want one well okay if it's a let <laughs> wait 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 so if the glowing of the crown is a legend because that's how they kind of like talk about it they're like the last time it glowed was when it was placed on queen isabella's head at her coronation one if it glowed on her head at her coronation regardless of which one that would have had to have been in living memory i don't know why they speak of that as if it's a legend because blair is meant to be like what 18 19 years old something like that 18 so it is well within living memory of multiple people who are actually in the film and no one speaks of the crown as if it is going to glow on Delancey's head. So I'm just, maybe they were like, well, it died with the bloodline. Like, here's my theory. Dudes. Here's my theory. It was a propaganda campaign put forth by Devin in the, in like, as a contingency in case the crown didn't glow. Ooh, that sounds exactly I like something she'd do. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see that happening. Because she's definitely bribing the police. She is. Oh, we, 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 she's that's bribing something else we're going to get into as well. Like, Oh, the, boy. The intrigue in this film. It runs deep, guys. Do we want to hit on international relations aspect of what the heck is going on in Princess Charm School next? Or Yes. I think um, before that, it's probably necessary to talk a little bit about what are all these government positions and what do they actually do because that's kind of, that's I think that's a little bit essential to understanding how the international system seems to work in this world question mark question, question mark. mark it's this is extrapolation at best oh we are not but going I also off, love it we are not going off of much firm detail but we are extrapolating <laughs> this so isn't much. very much canon but it's also not fanon it's just 
we're rolling with it. We're vibing. It's like when you watch the Cars movie by Pixar and you have to start thinking about the implications of that world. There's a car pope. Which means there must have been a car Jesus. There's car security. Yeah, but it's like, it's like the same thing. It's like, man, I, now that I'm like really trying to analyze films as I watch them for this podcast, the more I sit back and go like, wow, they just completely leave this unaddressed. World building. The world building in this, yeah, let's go into the government positions that are so central to the plot of this film. Oh yeah, go for it. All right, so, as previously established, um, there was a queen and a royal family who seemed to have an elevated position above these other royal families that consist of princesses, princes, etc. Um, the queen and her royal family are the rulers of Gardenia, obviously, and then the princesses and princes and their families seem to be the ruling, not monarchs, but uh, the ruling figures of th- about 30 or more other countries in the world. We got the number 30 by pausing the movie during the coronation scene and counting the number of people, uh, the number of students in the seats. <laughs> that, was, that was so funny. And then we have the lady royals who the film never really talks about what they do besides serving as the advisors to princesses and presumably princes i'm just going to assume there's a a lord royal analog as well but it never really discusses what they do my guess is that it's some kind of a like an advising position where they can be a confidant to their prince or princess and then also a vice president, wherein if the monarch dies and there is no heir, or if the heir is too young to rule, they can take over as a sort of regent. Because that was another question I had, you know, like, Isabella and the king are dead. Devon is clearly not running the country because she's teaching at charm school. Who the hell is running the country? Yeah. So, like, you know, the king and queen are dead. Then who's running the? Then who's driving the bus? Like, <laughs> literally, yeah. Because she's like, talks about when Delancey is going to like you know be coronated or whatever. She's going to, no longer be working, at like as much or at all for Princess Charm School. I think at all. So, she's been working, clearly then at Princess Charm School this whole time. It's not the headmistress because she's also working in Princess Charm School. There seemingly is no other government body besides the monarchy, question mark? Well, there might be, and we'll get into that. There might be a judiciary and, like, a court system, but we can get into that a bit later when we talk about religion. That's another thing. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Religion or the lack thereof. I feel like there's probably a regent, and we just don't see her because she's not relevant to the plot. Maybe it was the actual lady royal that the queen selected. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what I was thinking, um, because it never talks about who Isabella's lady royal actually was. Just that it's not Devon. Yeah, my guess is she's presently running the country as a a queen regent situation until Delancey... um, is a comes of age and graduates from school and is able to be crowned queen herself. International relations, right? This was a mess. <laughs> but it's also super interesting. So, like I mentioned, there seems to be about 30, maybe more, countries in this world, on this planet, plus Gardenia. Gardenia seems to be, like, the country in charge of all the other countries, and the Gardenian monarchy seems to rule over... Um, and govern all of these other countries, such as, quote, the East and Philadelphia. Um, they were reciting some of the names during the coronation scene and the graduation scene. And Oh, oh my boy. goodness. Philadelphia. <laughs> so good. Which brings into question whether this is a post-apocalypse or not, but I'm not going to get into that. That's, that's a podcast oh episode for another day, I suppose. That's for me and my English major persona. But yeah, so... The Gardenian royal family and Gardenia's country seems to then govern all of these other countries as semi-autonomous vassal states, almost. And each country seems to be ruled by its own less powerful royal family that consists of, you know, a prince, princess, all of that. And I guess the reason why we describe them as, like, less powerful royal families and 
as less powerful states is because that's just the vibes you get from the film. Like the maybe it's because they're in Gardenia and the school is in Gardenia, which is a whole other can of worms as well. But they there's a lot of emphasis placed on who is going to be crowned princess of Gardenia. And everyone seems to kind of like default to the Gardenian royalty and as like the big honcho ponchos. Yeah, yes. and it seems like only the Gardenian royal family have the ability to be crowned queen or king as opposed to just prince or princess. And like it wouldn't make sense to have a hierarchical title like that if it didn't carry some weight to it. So uh, so it's not really a confederation necessarily of just a bunch of countries ruled by princesses and princes. It's Gardenia followed by everyone else, I think. <laughs> And I think it's interesting how Gardenia seems to um, like maintain its power in this system through the Charm School as an entity. Wait, what's the Prince version called? I think it's Prince Charming Academy. Yeah. Through Princess Charm School and through Prince Charming Academy. Because, to our knowledge, both of those are located in Gardenia. They're literally right across like the mountain pass from each other. Yeah. And so they're both located in Gardenia. Every year, for presumably, you know, at least a semester, however long that is, all of the royal children who are heirs to the thrones of their respective countries are located in Gardenia at their respective schools being educated and taught in, like, our Gardenian society, Gardenian culture, and also just by sheer nature of their proximity, it really, um, it's not really an option for any of these other countries to attack Gardenia or try and, like, secede or overthrow them because the Gardenian government has their kids as hostages, basically. And it's a really, like, great analog to um, how in medieval Europe they had the system of wards, which were basically the same thing. Um, like, the king of, I don't know, France could send his son to England and have him be raised there, and it would serve as both, like, a means of maintaining a political alliance between the two countries, but then also as incentive for France to not attack England because England in retaliation could like harm that kid or something. So there's a historical basis there that I really wasn't expecting, but is really interesting and is a pretty clever way for the Gardenian royal family to like maintain their power. Yeah. Also, um, it's stated in the film that this has been going on for 500 years. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly working. That is entrenched in their society. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like twice as long as the U.S. has been U.S.ing. Yeah. Yes. It really puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. And that, I mean, that because again, that's just, that's what they said for how long the academies and schools have been running. Mm -hmm. So presumably... It could have been going on for even longer than that in terms of just, like, the monarchy. But, yeah, again, that's, like, honestly really impressive way of maintaining their power in that system. Mm -hmm. You do not want to miss with the Gardenian royal family, apparently. Unless you're Devin. Unless you're Devin. <laughs> True. In which case. I mean, you know. Okay. I think now we have to get into the class system analysis of Gardenia social society. Oh, boy. Oh, boy is right. <laughs> oh, boy. So when we're talking about analyzing any sort of class system, politically speaking, Gardenia is not a communist society. I'll preface that right there. It's very obviously a, like, absolute monarchy. However, using, like, a Marxist framework to analyze the class system in this is helpful just because Karl Marx was basing all of his analysis off of how the European class system originated in the feudal era through monarchies and then into the Industrial Revolution and how that resulted in a very specific um, class hierarchy developing, which is very analogous to the one we see in Gardenia. So as previously mentioned, we have the royal family, we have all of the nobility who consist of the princes and princesses of various other countries, we have the working class, which... Marx would call the proletariat and that's where Blair comes from and where she's raised and it seems to be the vast majority of the population. Y'all want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah so um, as we kind of stated before Blair um, is like working full-time as a barista to support her 
sister and sick mother who uh, adopted her when she was found after the car accident. And it is like made very, very apparent that she doesn't make a lot in tips in the shots of the film, um, that they don't live in a nice area. Um, and maybe Gab Gab, do you want to go into a little bit of that contrast between like when she arrives at Princess Charm School and how like her class is very apparent there? Yeah, so um, Blair is, her mother is sick. So Blair's mother is sick with unspecified, possibly terminal illness. She cannot work. So Blair is the sole person supporting her family, and she is doing so as a barista, waitress. It's unclear, but sort of that sort of line of work. So her sister has entered her into the lottery, uh, Blair didn't have any interest in this. She didn't think it was a possibility at all. So she comes home from work. She is in her stained work clothes. Um, just like it's a shirt, it's a pair of pants, it's an apron. Um, and she is picked up immediately after her name is drawn by the police to be taken to Princess Charm School. And she is given no time at all to pack any of her possessions or anything like that. It's and all at the school, he says. It's all at the school, he says. And so she has to leave her family immediately or forfeit her spot, which is crazy and definitely built in to get girls to not even accept the lottery. And also, by going to Princess Charm School, she will no longer be earning money to support her family, which is, you know, a big deal when she is the sole provider for her family. And there's clearly no health support, really, because there's no... The healthcare system appears to be insufficient as her mom isn't really getting the kind of care you would think she would need. They reference also aspiring towards better care. So that means better care is out there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Specifically tied to getting a better house as well. Yes, because they live in a less than desirable neighborhood in a rundown building. You can see the difference in the technology between like even the coffee shop slash cafe that Blair works at and her home. That has like the very sleek modern looking computers and cell phones but then you go back to her house and it's the big boxy tvs of like the 90s with the bunny ears and all that and you can see that difference even illustrated there and then even more starkly once she arrives at the princess academy she arrives she is in her work clothes they drop her off with absolutely nothing and no idea of where she's going or what she's doing she is like immediately mocked by the other girls who are in their very nice put together uniforms but she is in her barista outfit which has stains and everything one of the other princesses literally mistakes her for a waitress and like it's portia and she's like are you (laughs) taking like orders or something like that as she's standing there and then delancey like makes very apparent when she does not like Blair initially, that lottery winners hardly ever make it through the entirety of Princess Charm School. They have a 27% success rate. And that's over 500 years. Which, I did the math, that's maybe 130 lottery winners who, or people from the working class who were able to experience any kind of upward social mobility at all. That's not a good rate. Absolutely not. But Blair has incentive for really going at it and putting, like, a lot of elbow grease into becoming a lady royal because she sees this as, like, a one in a million shot to earn a better life for her and her family and get her mother the care she needs. Um, It is stated in the film that her mother is comfortable, which is a type of phrasing that's often used when patients are terminal. And the goal is simply to make their last remaining time as comfortable as possible, which makes me kind of believe that if her mother doesn't receive better medical care, she will die. It's a very apparent difference. And obviously, because it's a Barbie movie, the realities of poverty aren't really expanded on much, but you can They're sort alluded of, to, it's, for a, sure. it's alluded to. That's one of the undertones you get. It's for sure alluded to, and then it's also made very apparent that, you know, some people are more so accepting than others, but there are definitely members of Princess Charm School who... It's kind of like the presumption I had was this is not the first time that people in that institution have attempted to thwart the lottery winners from actually finishing. Mm -hmm. And again, there was also no guarantee that people trained as lady royals will even be selected to be lady royals. Mm -hmm. So it seems like, you know, it's kind of like this here you get this shot at, you know, advancing and being able to like move up in our you know class system but also like you know it's very much just a 
it's 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 a it's a fake it image is. of that because it doesn't actually ever happen really. Yeah, it's it's appeasement, honestly. Just to make the I suppose the working class feel like they have a chance when in reality the cards are so or the scales are so heavily weighted against them that they have to be really, really lucky to actually succeed in this system and move upwards. And like I guess speaking of using charm school as a appeasement method for classes, Lady Royals in general kind of confound this class system a little bit because they're they're not from noble families, it doesn't seem like. But they're also not working class, which by the analysis we're using would place them as a like middle class bourgeoisie situation who have very powerful like historically speaking the initial the original people um who made up the bourgeoisie in like pre-industrial Europe and industrial Europe were like factory owners or people who owned lots of land that was used for agricultural purposes rules like that they to use some like I suppose loaded terminology they owned the means of production right <laughs> there we go there I'm, we go I'm quoting the text I don't know what to tell you <laughs> fair enough fair without enough. that zesty vocab and phrasing this is why you're here yeah this political is... scientist yeah and the bourgeoisie historically emerged from the working class by owning factories and employing members of the working class so they had a middle role in between nobility and the working class I think that is where the Lady Royals are coming from, and the Lord Royals as well. They're not uh, nobility, but they're able to attend charm school by the graces of the nobility as a way to like maintain alliances and maintain the stability of the system. Because as this bourgeoisie middle class becomes more and more economically powerful, like working with them becomes necessary to run your country and have a sustaining, have a sustained economy and make sure there's not like an economic recession or all the boring practical parts of actually running a government, right? Yes. So my guess is once this middle class started to emerge after Gardenia's supposed industrial revolution, because like they have trains, they have a light rail system, they have cars, there had to have been one, and they also have electricity. So <laughs> I'm rambling a little bit. Is this a good segue into how the upper classes utilize outdated technology as a status symbol? Perhaps. Long story short, I think the nobility created the lady royal position and the lord royal position as a way to placate the bourgeoisie middle class as well. And they said, okay, well, you're not nobility, so you can't attend charm school to become princesses, but you can still have a role in our government system by sending your kids to become lord and lady royals and paying to attend this school, because it is implied that they have to pay Blair received a full scholarship as part of the lottery, but it's not mentioned that anyone else. It also has keeps that. the bourgeoisie as the lady and lord royals because mm -hmm. someone from the working class presumably cannot pay to enter Prince Charming Academy or Prince's Charm School. Oh yeah, the tuition on that school must be crazy. So it's another system of appeasement. And then like you can't tell me that allowing princesses and princes to choose their prince and lord royals isn't a super politically motivated decision. Like, some prince's dad has got to be like, hey, Prince Nicholas, my son, you know, there's this kid in your, in your class. He's the Lord. He's going to be the Lord Royal from this important company in our, in our country. You should choose him as your Lord Royal, because that way we'll have better ties with them and we'll be able to, like, negotiate better trade deals or something. It's got to be such a politically motivated decision. And so, of course, the lottery kid won't have a chance because all of the Lord and Lady Royals are getting snapped up by princesses and princes because they have connections. And by being from the working class, Blair or anyone else from the lottery doesn't have any of those connections. So even if they graduate, their chances of being selected are slim to none. Yeah, yeah. I think there's one thing we have to hit on in terms of the class analysis before we go anywhere else the fairies because the you, fairies you, you thought we were done when we got to the working class oh no 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 nope there is another category of sentient beings who fit a very niche role in this society take it away Elias. so the fairies are it's basically slavery it is slavery i don't know how else to put it they don't seem to have any rights they're only 
purpose in society from the film seems to be being the personal assistant to the princesses, princesses, and lord and lady royals. And they are not treated very nicely at all. Like, I don't know if it was just the movie trying to do some physical comedy or what, but like, the fair, the poor fairies are constantly getting like shut indoors and like having things set on top of them and accidentally like getting backhanded by someone across the way or hit by a, what was it, like a soccer ball? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like, yeah. And it's all just completely ignored. Like, they definitely, all of the humans definitely consider the fairies to be either subhuman or just completely beneath their notice. Even Blair, which yeah. is not great. There's no, like, implication that they are receiving anything for their services. So, again, this is why we do not think they're a part of some sort of working class. And they're also, in of themselves, class symbols. Mm -hmm. Because only the people attending, presumably, from what we see, Princess Charm School, who's to say for Prince Charming Academy, but definitely Princess Charm School, have them. Yeah, so it becomes... We are using living beings as a status symbol to display how distinct and separate and special we are compared to the working class, which is a really great segue into the point you had about how technology gets used to yeah. do it as well. So we see in the film that modern technology, such as smartphones, TVs, computers, and even beyond what we have in their magical sort of high-tech classroom situation, exist. But the sort of ruling class has chosen deliberately to utilize out-of-date technologies to separate themselves from the other classes. They use things like carriages, which we see throughout the film. Just, you know, horse-drawn carriage. And I'm sure there's other examples as well, but they use that sort of outdated technology to be like, we could use the modern stuff, but we don't have to. Because we're just that powerful. Yeah, we can pick and choose what yep. tech we use. Yep. And because really there is nothing distinguishing the upper classes from the working class but some property and a magical crown, they're all humans. And it's interesting because this sort of ideology that Gardenia is putting forward is that everyone's a princess on the inside. Everyone has the ability to become a princess or a prince. Except for the part where they don't. Except for the part yeah. where they don't. There's a song that plays throughout the movie about how every girl is a princess on the inside. And I know it was most likely written because little girl, A, it's a bop. It's, it's really catchy. And B, for like little girls to sing and be like, I'm a princess. I'm cool. I'm special. Which Okay, nice. But in the context of the film, it's kind of like, but everyone isn't a princess because not everyone can be a princess or even a lady royal. It's it's kind of funny. The most fairy tale aspect of the entire film isn't the actual presence of fairies. It isn't the glowing magical crown. No, it's social mobility. <laughs> Dang. Maybe the real fantasy was the social mobility we found along the way. There we go. There we go. <laughs> also, for fairy tale, it has horrible costumes. They're ugly. The ugly. coronation dresses. The coronation specifically are. Truly heinous. They're disgusting. They are like the most 2011 thing. High low, geometric shaped it's nightmares. It's very much prom instead of coronation. Yes. Yeah. And prom is important here because there is a piece on on Delancey that we see that is could be interpreted as a little bit of artifice, as a sort of crack in her veneer of power. So her dress has a corset back, which means it was not specifically fit to her because corset backs are something that are used in modern day palm dresses um, sometimes wedding dresses so that you don't have to fit the off the rack garment specifically to a certain person's body it can be adjusted through the tightening and loosening of the corset so Delancey who is supposed to be one of the most powerful people in the kingdom apparently cannot afford or get a hold of a perfectly fit dress which sort of pokes some cracks into her power symbol. It definitely shows, I think, that the power they have really is just all spectacle and all shock and awe. And when you actually look at it with a critical eye, it's a lot more uh, shabby and tenuously held together than it seems to be. You know that meme of um, Homer Simpson 
where yeah, <laughs> all of Homer is like rubber banded in his bag. Yeah, yep. yeah. And that's really what it's giving. Yes, it is. It's like, look at us. We're so powerful. Just don't look at all of the laces holding things together in the back. Ignore the duct tape. Yeah. Also, it makes, like, no sense why she wouldn't have a perfectly fitted gown, because it is established when Blair gets her magic gown from fairies that they can just magic up gowns that perfectly fit, which is what happens with Blair. Her gown is made out of magic, so why isn't Delancey's gown made out of magic, you know? Is Dame Devon's gown corset-backed, or is it... Not that I saw, but it is just simply hideous. That's true. She looks like that poison-spitting lizard from Jurassic Park with (laughs) glitter. I wonder if there was something there of the I feel like the funding of the monarchy was inaccessible until Delancey's coronation. Oh, maybe Dame Devon is embe- maybe Dame Devon is embezzling money from the crown. Also, I would say an element of Dame Devon's outfit. She has this large rough color, which could be sort of her, you know, taking the aesthetics of monarchy, which we often associate with those rough cat colors shout out to queen elizabeth the first um sort of like taking that on to be like i am royal i may not technically be a lady royal or queen or princess or whatever but i'm royal look at my big old ruff that's a really good point i hadn't even considered that but it is hideous it's really really bad yeah it might have backfired a little bit i think i was also supposed to be hideous because she's the villain and they don't get cute outfits okay they get ugly outfits all right um Going into some more of that uh, Gardenian ideology, we've talked about a little bit of the aesthetics that distinguish the nobility and the bourgeoisie from um, the working class and such. But there is something that we've kind of haven't hit on yet, and that is who is um, enforcing this system and structure. Let's let's take a little dive into that. There, it's the police. It's based on their dress. It's almost like they were trying to give it like bodyguard vibes, but they almost seem to be like omnipresent. Yeah, and when when they pick up Blair from Princess Charm School, there's literally a policeman just waiting outside, and he can on the drop of a hat go in and pick her up and take her to Charm School. Yeah, the announcement comes over on the TV, and he is at her door within like the next minute. Mm-hmm. Which could just be like a time-saving measure for the sake of the script, but like if you take that literally, that's scary. Yeah, even if it was a time-saving measure, it certainly reads a certain way on screen, and therefore, we can analyze it. Big Brother is watching, and the <laughs> what Big is this Brother podcast? is named Dame Devon. <laughs> what is this podcast if we are not to take things literally? Exactly. Yeah. And their costume, the police's costumes were, like, the double-breasted, like, overcoat situation. It was very much giving communist Russia. Oh my god, you're right. Like, it was definitely giving overbearing police state. And also the t- color of their ties I believe was pink which was tying them to the monarchy. The monarchy and nobility. And Dame Devon was absolutely bribing that one police officer um who was totally okay with shutting three 18-year-old girls in a vault presumably never to be let out again towards the end of the movie and arresting them on pretty obviously trumped up charges of theft. Yeah, because when he was on the theft scene, that's so important. Mm-hmm. He walks into their room because Dame Devon has accused Blair and her like roommates of theft after they've come back from the palace. And when he goes to search their rooms, because, you know, you should have nothing to hide if it's not true. That was so dystopian. So yeah, full of BS. Ooh. He immediately finds... What was stolen? Like, he walks into the room and has pulled out three pieces of jewelry within, like, a minute. And it's like, mm, one, if it was truly, like, you know, he's, like, opening up drawers and stuff. If they were hidden away and not in plain sight, how would he know where they were? Exactly. I know. Also, just, like, the unjust search and seizure of these poor girls. Yeah, there's no Bill of Rights in Gardenia. There's no Magna Carta. There's nothing limiting the power of the monarchy. It's absolute. And I mean, you can even tell, I feel like, that there is no... Like like how England has not only the monarchy, but also parliament. Mm -hmm. There is no parliament there, presumably, because when they're at the palace before the whole theft situation, they're taking a, like, dining, like, proper etiquette when eating class at the palace... And Delancey, 
forced to by Dame Devon because at this point she's becoming she's having some tension in her relationship with her mother is forced to give this presentation about what she is going to do once she has been coronated princess and it is tear down apartments and other like bits of where the working class has been living and replace it with luscious green like park space or whatever so absolutely putting a greenwash over what's happening there but uh to to directly quote dame devon it's all good for the environment this is a political policy phenomenon we see more and more nowadays where politicians or groups will put policies forth that can sometimes have very detrimental effects on people and their livelihoods but try to like excuse that or counterbalance that those effects by saying oh but it's good for the environment and of course protecting the environment is important but protecting human livelihoods is also important so it's called greenwashing like Catherine said it's like used as a smoke screen almost to disguise some of the negative consequences of certain policies I think it speaks to the absolute power that it seems that the monarchy has in terms of the fact that they're able to just demo these buildings Mm -hmm. with, you know, no holdback. And then it also kind of speaks to me about just like the sheer disconnect between the monarchy and nobility and the working class. Because even as Blair stands up and say, that's literally where my family lives. You can't do that. People live there. Like... No one does anything. No one has any concept of how vital that's where her family lives. They can't afford to live elsewhere. Blair's explaining that to these people and they are just sitting there. Yeah, I think they even say something along the lines of, oh, they'll just move. And Blair points out, these are people who can't afford to move. So where are they going to go? And again, this is a thing we see more and more frequently nowadays, not just the greenwashing part of it, but gentrification and people buying up property in lower income areas of cities or more dense urban areas refurbishing it or like making it very like sleek appealing to like a younger demographic which then raises the price of living and cost of living in those areas and forces the people who lived there initially to either like pay up or move if they can or become homeless because they can't afford to pay rent in that area anymore. It's it's a tough situation for sure. Talking about the disconnect between the monarchy and the working class again, Blair's friend in Charm School, I, the purple one, Hadley or Isla, I forget who exactly says this, but at one point when they're about in danger of missing their coronation and graduation, one of them says, it's okay, who needs a crown anyway, to Blair, which is It seems like such a tone-deaf thing for her to say because, yeah, her the friend might not need a crown to, like, pay rent or pay for food because they have a family who can presumably do all of that for them. But for Blair, graduating school is the only way for her to pay for her mom's medical care, ensure a better life for her family. It comes off as very tone-deaf and really dismissive of the actual concerns and worries that Blair has about living in this society. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I do have my, like, concluding discussion yes, questions yes. that we can... I'm so ready for these. You go. <laughs> if, you have, if you guys have any other ones, feel free to, like, I, toss them in. But... You go for it, Elias. Give us our concluding questions. So my first one. Would the charm school curriculum produce effective monarchs and or politicians? From, absolutely not. Yeah, from what we see, absolutely not. Because they're really just taught manners and dancing. Yeah, and I like, as I was thinking about these questions, you would think most of what they teach them at Princess Charm School would have been socialized into these people from their birth. Like a, a lot of, like, they're the monarchy, they're the nobility. So they're coming from families where presumably their parents in the 500 years that Princess Charm School has been around have also gone to this school and are also like, you know... They've, they've, they're just still in that same class, and so they're still, you know, doing that performative. To be fair, a lot of what we see is Blair being specifically tutored, so it is possible that everyone else just already knows, and she's being tutored specifically because she doesn't. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's also what's being taught in the classes. So, like, fair. everyone, like, you know, Delancey and the others already have the poise or whatever. They already, like, 
know how to like set these proper tea sets but that's also like being taught in the classes yeah so it's like and also they're being like taught dancing like what is that going to do to help you effectively govern a country okay they're already like massively tone deaf based on what we've seen for the actual needs of the rest of society what if princess charm school and prince charming academy are really all just big facade so they don't learn anything there but they still go because of the words what if because we don't see the classes being offered at prince charming academy that it's in like the fact that we don't see it is just disguising the patriarchy and the boys are actually receiving an education that would be like conducive to being a politician or monarch and the fact the fact that the princes had to travel to princess charm school to do the dance class does lend support to that i think but i guess to play devil's advocate here because i can do that now they the charm school curriculum might not produce effective monarchs or politicians in our system in our system of politics or government but considering what we know about how um the Gardenian class system works where there really is very little chance of these families falling out of power and they're absolute monarchs. They have the divine right to rule. They don't necessarily have to be good at what they do. They just have to look like they're good at what they do. Mm. In which case, training in all of these manners, etiquette, supposedly superficial things becomes critical them. to maintaining their class identity and their power. Yeah, I could it's see that. Exactly kind of why like we brought you on this podcast. Yes, it is. Kind of like how the British royal family is really just used these days as sort of like a ooh, shiny. I don't know, like a they're, mascot they're figureheads. <laughs> they're figureheads, you know? Yeah. They don't actually do the govern. Well, they do charity work, but not the actual governing. They're just I don't know, shiny to look at. They're Their official role is, uh, or I suppose the British monarch's official role is the head of state, where the prime minister of the UK, um, their role is the head of government. So the head of government does all of what we associate with governing, like they oversee oversee parliament, they um, do policy, all of that sort of stuff. The head of state is more or less a formality. They're kind of just there as a mascot, as a diplomatic figure to um, help maintain some of the like international relations and make the country look good or bad, depending on what they do. Yeah. So we don't have time to unpack unpack all of that. But in in the United States, the president is both the head of state and the head of government. So that's where the distinction lies. Yeah. So they're definitely producing heads of state here, but not necessarily heads of government. Well, they do act. I think they do act as the heads of government because what it's an else absolute, is the government? Because it's an absolute monarchy. But never mind. I have no idea. They just <laughs> they might not just be very. That's, no, that's just the whole thing with this film. When you're like actually trying to unpack the government, it's a, never mind. I have no idea. It's like I don't know. they they act as the heads of government and the heads of state. They just might not be very good at the head of government part. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's not necessarily all that different from our own actual history in this world. <laughs> True. All right, what else you got? So, question two. To what extent do we think the film is critical of the Gardenian monarchy and class system? I would say somewhat, because Blair is very much portrayed as in the right, sort of. And she's not groovy with the way the working class is treated. But I only say somewhat, because she's not critical of how the fairy class is treated. I would say somewhat um in in terms of like other barbie movies where there is a royal family like there is absolutely no critical thought extended towards like people outside of that family and how their lives function so the fact that we do get a glimpse of like an actual class structure that we're able to unpack and like a glimpse of how these people enforce um that class structure like you, th- the fact that there's that distinction there and we've like been able to extrapolate everything that we did is like, you know, really interesting and telling of like how much the film does kind of lend itself towards a critical eye of that. But at the same time, the big thing for me, Blair has to assimilate mm-hmm. at, by the end of the film. So it's, you know, presumably she's going to stop that thing from taking the family's like home or whatever and maybe further on into her 
time as princess, she will lend her lived experience towards that um, system that she is now in. But very much the fact that she has to become like them, has to train to be like them, is very indicative of like what the end goal there is. I mean, everyone is a princess, like. You can tell she's a princess. Yeah, so, like, I just, I feel like it's a critical yes a little bit in the fact that, like, it makes you think about things like this if you sit down like we did. Maybe no one else actually sat down like we did. I don't know. There's got to be someone. We're just just really out here crazy and wild. um, But I do think the fact that Blair assimilates the fact that she doesn't put any thought into how the fairies are treated and just kind of assumes, like, oh, well, that's just a part of, you know being in this new part of society or whatever. Yeah, I had some stuff written down about the assimilation stuff as well, but you covered it, I think, pretty succinctly. I think the biggest criticism that the film has with the Gardenian monarchy is that it seems to be targeting Blair specifically. But she's also the lost princess, so she's, like only ostensibly working class so you could also read this as the lottery and the charm school and the entire government system like restoring her to her birthright instead of actually inserting upward mobility i totally forgot about this but while we were watching the film i immediately thought of like the disney film about prince arthur i think it's like the sword in the stone yeah yeah. the whole thing is like oh yeah haha it's this little like boy named Wart is what they call him and the fact that he pulls the sword from the stone they're like oh my god you know a little boy like us who's poor and whatnot is actually like you know divine right or whatever selected to be like you know the king the prince etc etc but then it's revealed that his parent his father is actually like the previous king Uther Pendragon or whatever so it's like oh well actually no he's not and that's the exact same thing happens in this film is Mm -hmm. oh a working class like girl actually makes it no she's the lost princess she's the lost princess it was supposed to happen and it happened because other princesses were helping her and the system was helping her and the headmistress was able to like the headmistress saw something in her and decided to take her under her wing and tutor her to make sure that she succeeded. So basically, I think the what the film is criticizing is not the actual systems of power that Gardenia has or this world has, but the fact that Blair had that unjustly stripped from her by Dame Devon, who is a bad actor and, you know, an assassin and murderer. She's it's criticizing like the fact that there's a villain in the system and it's criticizing that villain's actions such not, as, the, system not the system itself you absolutely know that they are going to use this to justify like the lottery works exactly no it is the blair's success is the best pr story that the lottery could ever have oh yeah as a pr major yes <laughs> <laughs> finally my last question Odds on our Gardenian proletariat revolution? I'm going to say the fairy revolution is more likely because the working class has been sort of in their position for like 500 years or more. I I feel like the fairies are treated worse and they have magic. I think that it depends on what Blair does with her um, position, her new position. Will she you know, fully assimilate and forget everything about her upbringing? But if she like, you know actually does take steps to make change maybe that will actually make society better and people won't need a revolution but yeah for me i think it all depends on what the heck blair does with the crown yeah i do think blair could go two ways she could actually help the working class or she could just not i hope she helps the working class which i think would decrease the likelihood of a proletariat revolution but i don't think she's gonna care about the fairies so i feel like the fairies are more likely to revolt i agree with you on the fairy point for sure. Because there's there's no way they put up with that for much longer. Like, I feel like the only thing working against the fairies at this point in the system is the fact that there doesn't seem to be very many of them. Mm. And it's just a numbers game at that point. But I don't hold out a lot of hope for, like, a revolution by, for, and among the working class. I feel like if any change were to happen to the Gardenian government system, 
it would almost be an American Revolution like situation mm-hmm. where the bourgeoisie middle class, the lawyers, the doctors, the you know factory owners, etc., become so powerful that they decide, oh, this this lord and lady royal position, no, that's not enough for us. We're gonna overthrow it and have like a system that better benefits us. Whether that's a democracy, which I doubt, or some kind of oligarchy or plutocracy. It could be anything, but I feel like that's much more likely, especially given the fact that the Lady Royal and Lord Royal class has a lot more money to throw around and fund this. They they also have like that eye into that society, so they would know that the ruling monarchy and all the princes and princesses, it's very much an image thing. Like they would be I think they would know that because of their position as Lady and Lord Royals. And so I feel like at some point there's a high chance that they get dissatisfied with a root like monarchy and ruling class that is literally all image and no substance. <laughs> yeah, I can see that happening. We have we have the, the Gardenian tea party. This has been so very magical. Thank you so much, Elias, for taking time out of our midterms week to come here <laughs> and one, watch Barbie Princess Charm School and then spend like a bunch of time in this podcasting studio going over the like government and class structure within the film. This has been so zesty. You are absolutely welcome back whenever you would like. I would love to come back. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was incredible. Awesome. This has been your Bibble Babes. We are discussing the good, the bad, and the Barbie. Join us next time for our discussion of Barbie as the princess and the pauper. We post a new episode every other Friday. If you're new here, be sure to like and subscribe. And as always, spread kindness like glitter. Bye.